a historic reality, something that we look back to and, and celebrate, but it is actually the very picture in Scripture of what has been accomplished in our own lives spiritually. And this morning, I want to talk with you about being risen with Christ and particularly look at the perspectives of Paul on living a resurrected life. You and I have been given the ability to walk in newness of life. And we're going to do a survey this morning of Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. It's a rich passage. We won't touch on everything there. But I want to give you a high-level view of the great truths that we find in this text and draw some particular applications and implications for us. Now, as you know, uh, our major study in this class right now is focused on the book of James. And really the title of that series that Harry's using is Living Faith. Living Faith. And James repeatedly says that if you have genuine faith, if your life has been transformed, then you're going to live in a way that's radically different than how the world lives. And as a loving pastor, James on a number of occasions actually has to confront and exhort the congregation in Jerusalem to say, you know what? Your life doesn't match up with your profession. But that you have the expectation and the ability and the enabling to live a life that's consistent with what you profess. And he just calls the church to account to do that. And so our study this morning is going to be looking really at the theological perspective, the, the imagery that Paul presents to us in Romans chapter 6 that tells us why we can live a life of faith, why we can experience the power of Christ at work in us, as well as the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit to enable us to live a life that's Christ-like. And so we look at Romans 6 this morning, but by way of introduction, Many of us have read biographies. Some of us have read books even like Fox's Book of Martyrs, which looks back within the history of the church and points to those who have lived a life of faith, have lived a life of faithfulness, even under difficult and severe circumstances, circumstances that we would describe as being those facing persecution, actually risking their life. What was it that enabled these Christians to live a life of faith? I believe it comes back to an understanding of what we find in our text this morning. And just to illustrate this, a number of years ago, I had the chance to travel to Greece uh, with some of the leadership of the seminary and the university to set up a study program through the land of Greece and Turkey. And we found ourselves in one particular city. Uh, the name of the city is Meteora. And the name really reflects the landscape. It's a very unusual valley that has throughout the valley, a number of tall pinnacles of rock, just clear uh, cliff, uh, sheer cliff faces. And in med medieval times, uh, the church, which in this region came to be the Orthodox Church, the Greek Orthodox Church, this is long before the Reformation, actually built their monasteries and some of their chapels at the top of these sheer cliffs. And you can see those here uh, in the picture. It's pretty dramatic. And they used to draw the monks up by a pulley system. And part of this was their idea of separating themselves from the world. Now, we know that that was a mistaken uh, way of thinking. We're called to separate ourselves from the world, but we're also called to be in the world. And so we don't practice a life of asceticism, of separation. 
This is a spiritual reality that we set ourselves apart from the world. But it was interesting as we had a chance to tour one of the chapels uh, in these monasteries, I learned something, and this one particularly, in a small chapel there, that if you go inside the chapel, you'll see that at this time that they were built in the Middle Ages, uh, the majority of people were illiterate. The common person coming into these chapels and into the Orthodox churches were illiterate. They did not have the ability to read the Word of God, nor did they have it in their own language. And so the way of instruction that the priests used was using visual aids, much like we do today. When I grew up, it was flannel graph stories. Today, it's PowerPoints and other forms of visual support. But you can see the interior of these monastery chapels, and what you see are layers or levels of frescoes. And the most common way that they were laid out is the bottom level told the stories of the Old Testament, beginning with creation and the flood. And so the priest to an illiterate congregation would point to the pictures, the illustrations, and then explain the meaning to them. And that's how they learned the scriptures. The second tier or level were stories um, from the gospels and particularly the stories of Christ and his disciples. The third tier then often portrayed the Acts of the Apostles. But it was the top tier that caught my attention that day uh, that we were touring this chapel. And the very top tier were some very savage and severe images of Christian martyrs, those who had given their life for their faith. They are images such as these, and you can see there, uh, a beheading of this man. Of course, the illustration there as far as uh, behind the head represents that he was viewed by as a saint uh, in the Orthodox Church. And another picture here, you can see the heads rolling down after they've um, had their heads cut off because of their profession and testimony for Christ. And I remember asking myself a couple questions. One, would I be willing to stand for Christ in that day if my life were asked of me? And it, asked, it made me ask the second question, what enabled them to do so? What enabled them to stand in that moment, to not compromise, and to say, I have given my life wholly devoted to God, and I stand with Christ, even in the face of physical and imminent death? If you go back and read accounts of early martyrs and the persecuted uh, Christians, you'll see that they lived a radical life, certainly against the culture and all that it valued and its ethics, but even in practice, the way that they loved their neighbor, believing and unbelieving. You can go back and study, for instance, that the origins of the modern healthcare movement can be traced back to Christians who during times of plague and disease where healthcare was not available, <coughs> excuse me. It was Christians who were not concerned about physical death because of the truth we'll talk about today. And it released them, it freed them to go and give their lives, even if it meant they contracted a plague or a disease, if they could demonstrate the love of Christ to somebody who was suffering. And so early Christians went out into the highways and byways and they took in and care for those who were suffering from disease and plagues, those that the world had tossed aside, who had no value or actually posed a threat uh, to the welfare 
of others. Those who in our world who don't know Christ and don't know anything about a future hope, this is all that they live for. And if that becomes threatened or placed at risk, then you distance yourself from those threats. But what enabled Christians to do just the opposite? To not flee from threats and risks, but to move towards them, motivated by the love of Christ. I believe it's because of the great truths that we'll see in our text here. James Montgomery Boyce helps us in a book entitled Christ's Call to Discipleship. And this is by way of introduction. I want you to read along with me. Boyce says this, There is a fatal flaw in the professing church today, a lack of true discipleship. Discipleship is talked about, of course. There are books about it, particularly about what is called discipling other people. Words are not the problem, he says. What is lacking is the thing itself. But what are we to say about this next thing? The need for self-denial, expressed as taking up the cross. In this area, it is not only self-denial that is lacking, it is an area which we do not even speak. He goes on to say, this would be puzzling to saints who live before us. If they could observe us today, they would never understand how we can profess to follow Jesus and at the same time ignore self-denial. Because to them, self-denial would seem to be the very essence of what it means to be Christ. Today, some argue about faithful preaching of the word and faithful administration of the sacraments as marks. To these, some would add church discipline. What a shock it would be to many who stop at this point to learn that Martin Luther, among others, considered suffering to be a mark of the church and badge of discipline or discipleship. One of the memoranda drawn up in preparation for the drafting of the Augsburg Confession, the chief doctrinal statement of the Lutheran communions, defines the church as the community of those who are persecuted and martyred for the gospel's sake. The definition seems extreme to easygoing materialistic Christians, but it is not extreme in view of Christ's words to those whom he challenged to come after him. Finally, he says, to these, he said, his disciples, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. This is found in Luke chapter 9. This is the hard saying of Jesus about discipleship. We can perhaps handle the call to follow him, particularly if we do not think too deeply about what following Jesus Christ means. Well, what did Christ mean when he invited us to join in his sufferings, to die to ourselves, And as Paul explains to us here in describing a picture of a risen life to walk with Christ, to be alive with Christ. The first set of verses that we'll look at this morning begins to unfold for us four perspectives from the Apostle Paul on living a resurrected life. If you have your Bibles, I have it here on the screen as well. We begin reading in verse 1. Paul writes, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Great truths found here in this text of Scripture. We see here on three occasions that the word baptized or baptism is used. The word baptized 
comes from a compound word, baptizo, which means to dip or to immerse. It's like sticking your finger into a cup of water. Okay, And of course, baptism itself came to be understood as the symbol of the profession of faith in the early church and remains so today by the command of Christ. And so baptism emerges as a clear picture of the resurrected life. Notice also in this set of verses that there's a clear contrast provided for us between what? Death and life. A contrast between death and life. Now, why is this important, and why do I want to encourage us to think about it in practical terms in our own lives? Many of us still believe that we are enslaved to, we are limited by, and we are controlled by this sinful world. But Paul's saying something to us here. He says, we have died to sin. And we are now alive unto God. What does he mean for us? Well, as we look at this text of Scripture, we see the first perspective. Here in the text is a picture of a resurrected life. Paul describes for us in a very visual way that everyone in the church would understand because of the practice of baptism exactly what our new spiritual reality is. And I want to point out here as we talk about baptism for a moment, that baptism itself is more than a step of obedience. This is the most common way that baptism is talked about in the church. We see it simply as a form of duty. We profess Christ. We ask him to forgive us of our sins. We put our faith in his atoning work on the cross. And then what do we have to do? And notice how I said it. Oh, we have to be baptized. We think of it in mere terms of duty, but it's much more than that. And this morning, I want to elevate your thinking to this beautiful picture that really describes a reality for us. Baptism is much more than a step of obedience. It is the picture of our spiritual reality. And if you don't live in light of this truth and this reality, you will assume that you're destined to remain a slave to sin. And you'll consider to make statements in your own mind, in your own own heart after you sin. Why did I do that again? God, please forgive me. Why did I do that again? It's this defeatism. And I want you to see something radically different in the text. We're not to live according to a defeatism mentality about sin. We're to align our thinking with the promise of victory over sin. And we'll see how that unfolds and I'll give you a number of references that you can study uh, throughout the week to reaffirm this great truth in your life. But first of all, we see in this set of verses, <coughs> excuse me, that baptism is more than a step of obedience. Baptism, number two, is an illustration of our new spiritual reality, an illustration, a picture, a portrayal. Just as you were to walk into those Orthodox chapels and a priest would point to that picture, and he would say, this is what the spiritual truth is about this portrayal. That's what Paul's doing here. He's pointing to the practice of baptism, and he's saying, this is your new spiritual reality. This is what's been accomplished on your behalf. And I hope this morning that you'll leave with a renewed understanding and a refreshed perspective on this picture of baptism. 
Third, we'll see that baptism emphasizes the lordship of Christ. Who's victorious over sin? That's right. Christ is, and thank you, and believers. But notice that as someone who's died to sin and been raised in newness of life, there's an expectation implied here by Paul that we live wholly and completely under the authority of Jesus Christ, not the authority of sin. Isn't it true for us who are still bound by this flesh of sin? Paul explains for us in in chapter 7 and 8 coming up, the battle that rages for us. And there is a battle, okay? This body, until it's replaced with a new resurrected body, an eternal body, will always hold for us the temptations, okay? And we'll struggle with that. We know that. But there's an inner reality, a greater truth. And the fact is that we now are under the authority of Christ. But some of us feel like we straddle two worlds. And again, with that defeatist mentality, we feel like, here I go again. This is just my, this is my destiny, in a sense. We're fatalist in that regard. That's a very unbiblical way to think. Yes, we struggle with sin, but you shouldn't be a fatalist about it. You should have a confidence in the promise of God that he who began a good work in you is going to be faithful to complete it. And he's accomplishing that work in your life. And so we understand here that this requires that we recognize that Christ is our Lord. And the last observation I want to make here with regard to baptism is that baptism demonstrates it's the life of God at work in us. This phrase here of being raised in the newness of life, this isn't just talking about your new life. This is talking about the life of God in you, in me. And we are enabled then to walk in this new pattern through the power and strength that resides within us. That's amazing. And that's why we can't only think in terms of defeatism and fatalism with regard to overcoming sin. Now, I want to help you a little bit more in understanding the significance of baptism for the church. We see in baptism, of course, three aspects, the death, burial, and resurrection. And we understand that those portray this picture of dying to the realm of sin and being raised into the realm of righteousness and holiness. But I didn't fully appreciate the significance of baptism for many years until I started to read a little bit in church history. And in church history, there's a particular group of saints and believers known as the Anabaptists. And I hadn't read much about the Anabaptists. Matter of fact, I wasn't sure I was supposed to. And I had the chance sitting at lunch uh, one day uh, next to our pastor. And he asked me what I was reading. I was explaining that I was reading this book on the Anabaptists. And he said, oh, that's great. He said, you realize that we hold to a Reformed soteriology and an Anabaptist ecclesiology. I thought to myself, kind of embarrassed to admit, but I said, actually, I didn't know that. I didn't really understand that. And uh, through the encouragement of other faculty members of the seminary and so forth, uh, I was directed to some readings in the Anabaptists that really helped me grow in my appreciation for the significance of baptism as it is the picture and portrayal of our new spiritual reality. I want to introduce you to some of these thoughts, and that's why I'm using a PowerPoint this morning so that you can benefit from some of these uh, statements. There's an Anabaptist scholar, historian, 
theologian named Harold Bender, and I want to share with you a few comments by him. Bender says this, external water baptism is a declaration of the church in agreement with the believer that the experience described in Romans 6 has actually occurred. The candidate for baptism must therefore be capable of making the required commitment to Christ and must openly confess that this has happened. As a rite of initiation, baptism matches the union with Christ by incorporation into the visible fellowship of believers. What's he saying? This picture of baptism is a reality. Okay, It's not just, as I said, an, an act of duty. It's not just symbolic in some kind of ritualistic way. It is descriptive of the reality of what's occurred in our lives. And that's Paul's point in our text. And he says here, as we practice that in the context of the local church, as we come out of the waters of baptism, we are demonstrating that we visibly identify with others who've made the same profession and claim the same reality in their life. It is identifying with and into the body of Christ. That means for us, and this was John's point about ecclesiology, this means there is the same expectation that James had of the Jerusalem church. You actually live your faith out. You actually need to live in accordance with the great truths, the principles, the values, and the ethics taught to us by Jesus Christ. This is the radical nature of a life submitted to the Lordship of Christ. <coughs> uh, Bender goes on to, to help us understand who the Anabaptists were. First of all, the name is a compound word. Ana, the Greek word there, means again, and baptizo, uh, is what we derive the name Anabaptist from, Anabaptizo. And the term Anabaptist comes from the practice of baptizing individuals who had been baptized previously, often as infants. But Anabaptists believed that infant baptism was not valid. How could a child repent of their sins, claim Christ as their Lord and Savior, and be expected to live a life of obedience to the Lordship of Christ? And of course, this was a great debate, wasn't it, during the time of the Reformation? We're familiar with many of the classic reformers, men like Martin Luther and, and of course, others who came after him. But there are others like uh, Zwingli, for instance, who pastored a church in Zurich and his followers who came to be identified as these rebaptizers. Those who looked at the reality of infant baptism said that really is not enough to be incorporated into the body of Christ. They wanted to see those who are mature in their understanding. Uh, and this is why we focus a lot of times on adults being baptized or, or older teens and, and adults being baptized because we believe they are of an age that they can understand what their confession actually means and their profession uh, is something that they will then be held accountable to in the body of Christ. And so the Anabaptists rejected infant baptism Infant baptism uh, itself was something that the classic reformers held to, and it's difficult for us to fully understand because it was at a time that there was no distinction between church and state. And so to be a member of the state, you had to be baptized into the church, and it was all wrapped up in that identity of Christendom. And the Anabaptists said, no, this is no longer uh, the practice that we should follow. We want the church to be comprised of people who've genuinely come to faith in Christ. Bender goes on to help us by saying, uh, hang on a second, this is the trouble with PowerPoint, so you have to bear with me. 
Oh, no, we're good. All right. Just don't have it in my notes. Let's read it here. During the 16th century of Reformation in Europe, the Protestant Anabaptist or Christian Brethren movement flourished in Germany, flourished in Austria, the Netherlands, and other countries. The basic belief of the Anabaptists was in adult baptism. But they also support the separation of church and state and voluntary church membership. See the distinction that they're making? Many of the Anabaptist denominations that emerged after the Reformation were attempts to revive the church by returning to first century conditions described in the New Testament. Bender then says, in essence, the discipleship which the Anabaptists proclaimed was simply the bringing of what? The whole life, the entire life under the Lordship of Christ. And the transformation of this life, both personal, not just meaning internally, but social, how you live out your faith in the context of the church. It was bringing all these things under the Lordship of Christ, realizing that we were being made after his own image. From this point of view, they subjected not only the church, but the whole social and cultural order to criticism. And they rejected what they found to be contrary to Christ and attempted to put into actual practice his teachings as they understood them, both ethically and sociologically. That's a mouthful. Let me just break it down for you. Okay. What he's saying here is the Anabaptists understood what baptism represented is that you've died to the world. That means the way you live your life every day, not just in the confines of the local church, but in your village or in your town or in your place of employment, wherever God sets you in the course of the day, you have to bring everything under the Lordship of Christ. If your government asks you to do something that is in contrast to what Christ asks you to do, who do you side with? With Christ. The way you conduct your business, do you conduct it according to the world's values or do you conduct it according to the values of Christ we find in the New Testament? And this is what it means to die to the world. You don't live with one foot in the world and one foot in the church. By way of a commitment to its values and its worldview and ethics, you bring everything under the critique and criticism of the scriptures. And then you have to live a life of faith in accord with what those principles are. That was the radical commitment of the Anabaptists, but not so radical. It's actually a New Testament principle. It's what Paul's teaching us here. You've died to the world. And now you walk in newness of life. Well, it is convicting, isn't it? It'll get encouraging in a moment, but it's convicting as well. When we talk about discipleship, particularly in an Anabaptist context, I make a distinction between discipleship with a small letter D and discipleship with a capital D. And as Boyce said earlier in the quote we read, we talk about discipleship all the time, don't we? This person's discipling me. I'm in this discipleship group. We're committed to discipling one another in the context of the church. And we're grateful for that focus on interpersonal discipleship. But the way the term was used by the Anabaptists is the way I'd really like to see us recover in our understanding. And that's what I call discipleship with a capital D. And that is this idea portrayed in baptism that everything is brought into the Lordship of Christ. And so the way we both profess and live our lives as pictures of this great spiritual truth means we live lives of integrity. So to be a disciple of Christ is being a disciple with a capital D, not meeting on Thursday to go through a book study and talk about where you need to change in your own life. That's an outworking of discipleship with a capital D. But we need to think in terms of what does it mean to say, I'm going to follow Christ. 
with abandonment, without looking over my shoulder, without turning my back, I'm all in. And this was really what Christ was calling his disciples to. Another theologian, John R. Martin, says this to us. He says, the term discipleship refers to the Anabaptist concept um, of the Christian life as a daily following of Christ by bringing the whole of one's life under his lordship. And the Anabaptists used the German term, Nachfolge Christi, translation in German, of following Christ or discipleship, which was central to their understanding of the Christian life and to their theology. What's he saying here? He's saying, by professing Christ, the symbolism of baptism, raised in newness of life, joining the church, is what you're saying is, I'm going to devote my life as a full follower of him. Not a hesitant one, not a reluctant one, not a casual one, but one who is completely submitted to living in his power and consistent with his life. Martin goes on to say, the term discipling refers to the process of helping Christian disciples understand and follow the call of Christ in their total lives as members of his body. And while the Anabaptists did not have a planned program of discipling, he means like regular meetings and book studies and and a curriculum in that sense. He says, the phenomenon took place through the intense form of their congregational and community life. Haven't we been talking about community and Cornerstone for several years? What is it that we want to stimulate uh, in our group? Is that we actually live lives of authenticity. We actually deal with the realities of sin in our life, and, and we encourage one another through the process of, of repentance and seeking and granting forgiveness and encouragement through the scriptures, and yes, sometimes exhortation, that we continue to aspire even fuller to live like Christ lived. That's what the Anabaptists had as an expectation in the context of church life. Think about it this way. Understanding the significance of the New Testament and its meaning of baptism, the Anabaptists insisted that genuine believers be baptized for church membership. Do you understand now the significance of it? Not just a task or a duty that we're supposed to do. This told everybody in the church, this is who I am. I'm completely committed to making Christ my Lord and living as his disciple. That's the significance of it. That's the profession that is made as you go into the waters and come out of them in baptism. Thus, the Anabaptists rejected infant baptism, as I said. And infant baptism was adopted originally as a symbol of admission into Christendom when Christianity was made the state religion of the Roman Empire. As a result, the church was filled with many unbelievers, leading to impurity and hypocrisy. This is an important point, and why baptism was so important uh, to the Anabaptists. Because at this point, at the Reformation, there were so many unbelievers who were filling the church. There had only been one church at that point, that's the Catholic Church. It was the word Catholic means universal. This was the church that uh, throughout the Middle Ages and uh, the medieval times had came to exist, and it had been propagated through Catholic missionaries throughout the known world. So the church existed. It was universal. It was the one church. The problem with the existing Catholic church from the perspective of the Anabaptists was it was filled with unbelievers, people who the picture of baptism wasn't true for them. And therefore, the lack of integrity by way of, of moral practice and principles in the life of the church, the abuses of priests towards the laity, false doctrine and teaching, all of this 
was the outworking of simply unbelievers, not just being in the pews, but being in leadership. And the Anabaptist said it cannot be so. And it was out of the Anabaptist tradition that churches comprised of true believers began to be planted, and the modern missions movement found its roots. We can trace back the last 350 or so years of the modern missions movement, actually further back, even to the work of the Anabaptists. What was their point? If a true church doesn't exist, comprised of true believers, we need to start one. And you don't get in that church unless you've been baptized. And not just the practice, but the significance of the meaning of what it is as as your testimony as a follower of Christ. And they were aiming to have a true church, a pure church. That's why today the danger of pragmatic or seeker-sensitive churches threaten the purity and testimony of the church by bringing unbelievers into the church without calling them to repentance and making Christ their Lord. Do you see the danger? Our pastor's been speaking out against this for years. And we look at the evangelical church today, and while people may have been baptized at some point, there's nothing evident in their life that they actually have made this commitment to follow Christ with abandon. So baptism for us provides a wonderful picture of a spiritual reality that has everything to do with the integrity and witness and testimony of Christ's church. Well, in the next set of verses, verses 5 through 8, we see Paul's second perspective. Let's read that. It says, For we, if we have been united with him in death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also, we will also live with him. Again, in this, these sets of verses, we see some contrasts. We see contrasts between what? Slavery and freedom. And this wonderful truth unfolds for us the fact that we have been set free from the law of sin. Again, we see in verse 8, 7, and 8, the contrast between death and life. And Paul affords for us these intentional contrasts to illustrate for us that there has been a transformation. There has been a change from one realm of sin to now the realm of righteousness. He begins, of course, in verses 5, and six, by saying that we've been united with him. This is a spiritual uniting. We, when Christ died, we died with him. And this is applied to us in practice at the point of our conversion. What we're saying when we repent of our sins is, I am dying to sin. And this uniting with Christ is also the confidence we have that it's he who lives within us. What did Paul say in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21? For me to live is Christ. How can he make that claim? He's claiming that based on this truth principle. I'm alive in Christ. Christ lives in me. So as long as I walk on this earth, there is the ability and the potential for Christ's life to be put on display in my life. <coughs> Don't just be a fatalist. Don't just have a defeatist mentality. If this is in fact the truth, then we need to align our thinking and our lives and our choices with this reality. 
And so we see in the set of verses our second perspective from Paul, and that is there's a promise of a resurrected life. A promise. Our hope is caught up in these truths. First, we were buried in death with Christ. And this idea of being buried in death or dying to sin is actually saying that while we still contend with the reality of of sinfulness in the flesh, we have died to the realm of sin. The world that we knew only as being a member or citizen of the kingdom of Satan, we've died to that. And he says, in being raised to life in Christ, now we live in a new realm. It's a realm of righteousness. It's a reality for us to actually recognize that today, or at the point of conversion, I should say, as we accepted Christ as our Lord and Savior and our sins were forgiven and the Holy Spirit began the work of regeneration in our lives, we actually begin to live our eternal life. Now, I know our hope is in the future, right? And we look forward to an ultimate resurrection and joining Christ in heaven. But I don't know if you think about it this way. When you came to faith in Christ, you actually began to live eternal life. That means today you and I have the ability to live in a manner, we have the freedom to live in a manner consistent with how we'll live for all eternity. That will change your mindset about being enslaved to sin. You have a choice. You have a choice. This is what Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, verse 13. He says, we've been set free from the law of sin, but now what? Don't use your freedom for yourself. See, when you were a citizen and member of the realm of sin, you had no choice. You could only please yourself. You were a slave to the idolatry of self. But dying to sin, being united with Christ, what it did is it released us from that realm. And now we possess a choice. Do you understand this? You don't have to sin. You actually don't have to sin. Now, if you just think in those terms, I have to, you'll continue to live in that pattern and never beginning to let these great truths reframe your thinking. Let me give you another example. We're in the book of James, right? James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15 talks about sin. It begins with what? There's a temptation. Now, we have a choice to make, right? Are we going to yield to that temptation and let lust conceive? And if we begin to entertain that temptation, it begins to be driven then by the flesh and that sinful lust, it will result in what? An act of sin that eventually, if there's no repentance, will lead to death. Do you understand there are points of choice and decision throughout that process? And you and I have the ability when the temptation comes to actually choose to reject it. You did not have that choice before you died with Christ but you and I have it today. Temptation comes, you might yield, and then you have a choice again. Am I going to nurture the lust? I can sense the lust being aroused in my, in my flesh. What am I going to do? Fight it or resign to it? And then in resigning to it, are you going to maintain a pattern of that or are you going to repent? Make a choice again? Turn back to God? 
Do you see the points of decision-making? We only can make those decisions because we have been set free. And that's the opportunity you and I have. That's where it gets real for us. But if you think I have no choice but to sin and I can't wait till Christ returns to get me out of this state I'm in, you're going to fail to begin to understand the privilege we have to live the resurrected life now. Now we'll get there, but the good news is you don't have to do this in your own strength. Okay? Let's continue, though, for a moment. We talk about needing to die to the sin. Well, what is dying to the world? We benefit again from some of the Anabaptist writers. John Martin here says this, The theme of the cross and suffering runs through the teachings of Jesus and the apostles. Jesus indicated that each follower, his disciples, would have his own cross, and it would in some way be related to the cross of Christ. This is seen most clearly in Mark's gospel. Jesus told the disciples about his own suffering, death, and resurrection. And he then invited any who wished to follow him to take up his own cross and follow him. In Matthew chapter 10, we read the account there where Matthew's report of Jesus' words concerning the family divisions that will come because of the gospel. This is followed by the warning that the worthy follower is the one who takes his cross and follows him. As we saw earlier in Luke chapter 9, Martin points out, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. Christ here in Luke 9, at the invitation to his followers, uh, his disciples to follow him, to take up their cross, he uses resurrection language. He's talking about dying. That's the picture of the cross. That's what the cross symbolizes. But he says here in Luke chapter 9, it's whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. He'll die to his former life. And whoever loses that former life, for my sake, Christ's sake, he's the one who will save it. His life will be saved. He will be given life, a new life. Martin then goes on to say, Luke places the emphasis on Jesus' insistence on counting the cost before deciding to follow because to follow truly means bearing one's own cross. It is significant to observe that each of these passages, an individual cross and following, uh, following Jesus are brought together. Have you heard our pastor make the emphasis over the years that Christ should be not only our Savior, but our... That's these truths that we're studying this morning. See, we don't preach the entirety of the gospel. I grew up in a tradition that preached an easy believism. Jesus loves you. He died for your sins. He doesn't want you to spend eternity in hell. Just ask him to forgive your sins and you're in. That wasn't Christ's presentation to his disciples, was it? He said, you want to be part of the kingdom? You're going to have to die to sin. You have to repent of sin. You're going to have to turn away from the world And you have to come and be completely abandoned to me as your Lord. And what we need to do a better job of in our gospel presentations is to say to people, Christ doesn't just want to be your Savior. He insists on being your Lord. Now, if you want to make that commitment, you make that commitment. And then you enter into the waters of baptism, which illustrates that great truth. 
We have to be faithful to preach the true gospel. Martin goes on saying, Christ identified the cross as a central symbol for viewing his life of suffering as he encountered a world of unbelief and evil. <clears throat> this was what it cost to follow the will of the Father, and this is also what it will cost for believers to follow the will of the Son. Thus, in order to follow Christ, we have to deny ourselves, to crucify ourselves, to lose ourselves. The full exorable demand of Jesus Christ is now laid bare. He does not call us to a sloppy half-heartedness, but to a vigorous, absolute commitment. He invites us to make him our Lord. The astonishing idea is current in some circles today that we can enjoy the benefits of Christ's salvation without accepting the challenge of his sovereign lordship. Do you see the problem? That's why the current evangelical church is a disaster today. You invite people to come be a part of the church based on the lowest common commitment. Ease them into the church. But you have to ask the question, at what point do you ever call them to account? If your aim is to not only call them into the lowest standard of commitment, then the only way to keep them there is to maintain that low standard. And with that comes great confusion, hypocrisy, sin, and sadly many people who probably on the day of judgment will hear from Christ, depart from me, I never knew you, though you claim my name. So you and I have to take this seriously, not only in our own lives, but we have to take it seriously in our evangelistic ministry, okay? All right. John Stott, a name probably more familiar to you, helps us to understand, sorry, got ahead, um, this same principle, and he says this in his book, Basic Christianity, which I'm sure many of you read. Thus, in order to follow Christ, we have to deny ourselves, to crucify ourselves, to lose ourselves. The f- I already read that, didn't I? Well, let's keep moving, because time's running. So how do you live the resurrected life? One of the uh, followers of the Anabaptist tradition, Menno Simons, and we don't hold to all that he has written, but he did make this relevant observation in his book, The New Birth. He says, The regenerate therefore lead a penitent and new life, for they are renewed in Christ and have received a new heart and spirit. Once they were earthly-minded, now heavenly. Once they were carnal, now spiritual. Once they were unrighteous, now righteous. Once they were evil, now good. And they live no longer after the old corrupted nature of the first earthly Adam, but after the new upright nature of the new and heavenly Adam, Christ Jesus. Even as Paul says, nevertheless, I lived, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. In baptism, they bury their sins in the Lord's death and rise with him to a new life. In the next section here, we'll see in verses 9 through 13, A third perspective from the Apostle Paul. Let's read those verses. Verse 9, it says, We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Verse 12, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members present them to God as instruments of righteousness. Again, we see this contrast that Paul wants to provide in this series of verses between presenting our members, our our bodies, the, the outworking of our actions and choices no longer to unrighteousness, but now present them to righteousness. And 
When you look at the word present here, it's used in two tenses. Verse 13, do not present. It's a command. It's an imperative, but it's a, a present imperative. Meaning, no longer continue going on presenting your members as instruments of unrighteousness. That's James 1, 14 and 15. Don't make that choice. Okay? But the second use of the word present here is what's seen as a aorist imperative, meaning looking back. Okay? At the point of conversion, and what baptism symbolizes is that then and there you made a decision to present your members to righteousness. Okay? This was a commitment you already made. And so he says, don't then make choices to go back and present your members to unrighteousness. This third perspective is the practice of a resurrected life. He says here, clearly, we are not to present the members of our bodies to sin for unrighteousness. I mean, don't continue to do that. And we are to present, once for all, the members of our body to God for righteousness. We don't have time, but you can look down through verses 16 through 20 of this chapter, and he begins to unfold this great truth of presenting our members to God and living a life that is yielding and laying down and submitting ourselves to Christ as our Lord. Let's go on, and I'm going to skip a couple slides. I want to look at what does it mean to live a resurrected life and the practice of a resurrected life. We're reminded in just a few chapters later in Romans chapter 12 that we are to do what? Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by the testing, by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Isn't that consistent with what he's saying in chapter 6? Now, don't yield your members any longer to unrighteousness. Present them as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God. And it's an act of worship by which we demonstrate our love for him. I want you to write down these texts. Time doesn't afford us the chance to look at all of them. That's why I put them here. But Paul's very consistent in using resurrection language throughout all of his epistles. And we see it in Galatians Chapter 2, Galatians chapter 6, where the wonderful truth is revealed to us that, again, we are no longer slaves to sin. And as we draw things to a close, I want to look at this fourth perspective from the Apostle Paul. It's found in verse 14. Verse 14, we read, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law but under grace. What is this great truth? The word dominion there refers to rule or power or kingly authority. We're no longer under the power of Satan. Okay? And sin itself has no authority over our lives. We are now not under the law, but grace. See, the law revealed sin to us. We look at our lives compared to the law and realize we can't meet that standard. We are unholy and unrighteous people. That was its purpose. And so the failed attempt of legalism in trying to keep the law, we know, uh, will never be the path to earning God's favor or his forgiveness. It's only because of his grace and the application of the atoning work of Christ on our behalf. That goes back to Paul's original idea. We've been united with Christ, okay? And we've been raised in newness of his life. 
And so lastly, we see the fourth perspective, and that's the power of a resurrected life. Sin no, a sin's power no longer controls us. It no longer has lordship over us. But God's power itself now enables us. Just as we close, jot down a few of these references. Particularly, take the opportunity this week to read through the book of Colossians, chapter 2 and chapter 3. And I want to close with just reading Colossians chapter 3. Paul says this, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. This is our great hope. We have the ability today to live the resurrected life. We've seen the picture of baptism. Okay, We understand the promise that it affords to us that we can have victory today. We understand the practice then of not yielding our members any longer, but presenting them in a holy duty of worship to God And then we're promised here that we've been set free from the power of sin, the dominion over sin, and we now live under the power of God, who not is just over us, but indwells us. This is the wonderful joy that we possess today. I would encourage you, if you'd like further reading on this topic, to take a look at a book by Steve Nichols entitled Heaven on Earth. This illustrates from some of Jonathan Edwards' sermons how it is that we are to think about living a resurrected life. And I'll just give you an insight. He says it's a life that we find much joy in, not just duty and demand, but great joy in living in the presence and the power of Jesus Christ. Let me close for us this morning. Father, there's so much here to consider, and I trust that the particular focus on the picture of baptism was a benefit for us to frame how we should view our Christian life. Help us to not only think in terms of being defeated by sin continually, but let us claim by faith your promise that you will enable us, empower us to live a life of obedience and holiness. And yes, we wait for release from this body of sin, But you have created a new creature in us. And that new creature has the ability then to live a transformed life and to bear fruit of Christ-likeness. May this be true of us in the days to come, more so than ever. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.